It's really expensive when you don't have your personal finance issues together. It can happen at any age. So it's best to set them up for success when they're younger. And of course, you don't always know what's going to happen, what life will unfold. There's all kinds of variables in our health, in how our careers and so on. So you want your children to be in a good place. You're listening to The Life and Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, hey, everyone. Annie Dickerson here together with Julie Lamb. And today we are thrilled to have a special guest on the podcast. Her name is Bobby Rebel. Now, before we talk about Bobby, for anyone who's listened to the podcast for a good amount of time, you know that Julie and I are always talking about uh, what we're getting up to with our kids and our families. It's our big why for why we do the things that we do so that we can have more free time to spend with our kids and our families, to travel the world, to homeschool as Julie does. And we're always talking about our passion for teaching kids, especially young kids, about finances, about money, about investing, about entrepreneurship. I know Julie, through her homeschooling, she has a weekly investor lab and entrepreneur lab with her kids. And I know that her kids are working together on a lemonade stand, not just hosting it one time, but refining it over time and really taking into account the marketing and the strategies, the hiring, the scaling, the ingredients, all of it, which is when you're young, it's just so much fun. You don't have the intimidation of later on when you're starting a business and you think about the LLCs and the attorneys and the taxes and all that stuff, right? It's just fun when you're little. And so that's why we're so passionate about teaching it at a young age, because these concepts will carry through even into teenagehood, into young adulthood, and on through life. It's what we do through Money Wise Kids. And for those of you who have older kids who may have left home and started their own lives and have careers or are budding entrepreneurs themselves, that's why you're definitely going to want to listen to today's episode with Bobby Rebel. She is the author of the books Launching Financial Grownups and How to Be a Financial Grownup. She's also host of the podcast Money Tips for Financial Grownups. Now, Bobby started with a passion for teaching people about financial literacy, financial sense, you know, how to be a financial grown-up, right? Things like budgeting and taxes and investing and saving, all of that good stuff, right? And then she realized as her kids were leaving home and becoming young adults out in the world, she realized that nobody was talking about how to teach your grown kids about finances in the real world. Sure, they might have been taught about some finances and piggy banks and may have bought a stock or two while they were preteens or teenagers. But once they got out into the real world and they have a paycheck and they have rent and they're thinking about buying a place and they're thinking about how to get a promotion, how to pay their taxes, there's a whole litany of things that young adults, especially in today's age, are facing. And so Bobby's super passionate about that. She talks about that on the show. She talks about her story, how she got into all of this in the first place. 
And then now how she helps not only people become financial grownups, but also parents, how to help your children to become financial grownups out in the world down to even in the book, I think she has a line by line, like how to read a paycheck, how to talk to your kids about their paycheck. And what are all these taxes and all these different things that are listed in their paycheck so you can have a real and honest conversation with your children about it, teach them about it and help them to become more financially empowered out in the world. So before we dive in though, well, a lot of you already have some experience with real estate investing, but there are also a handful of you who are new to the world of real estate investing. And if so, we have a fantastic resource for you. If you're curious about passive investing through real estate syndications in particular, it's our book. It's called Investing for Good. And we really walk through all the ins and outs of what it means to invest passively in real estate syndications or group investments. And that's a big part of being a financial grown-up is figuring out how not only to save, but also how to invest, how to invest responsibly and invest in a way that fits with your lifestyle. And passive investing through real estate syndications can be a great fit for a lot of people who want to put their money into real estate, but don't want to do any of the work of being a landlord. So to get a copy of the book, just go to goodegginvestments.com com slash book. All right, with that, let's dive into our conversation with Bobby Rebel. Bobby, welcome to the show. How are you? I am so happy to be here. I'm a big fan of this podcast, so I was honored to be invited on. Oh, well, we're thrilled to have you here. Now, Bobby, I think when we first met you at FinCon years ago, and I think maybe the Mom 2.0 conference as well, I remember right. you had such a presence on stage and oh. you just brought such a lightness and a can-do added to the world of personal finance, which I know Julie and I have always admired. And I know that these days you're an acclaimed author and a podcast host, and you've spoken on stages all around the world. So with that... I'm curious, did you always have a passion for money and finance, even when you were growing up? Or how did that come to be part of your story? I did not have a passion for money and finance (laughs) growing up. What happened was I was very passionate about TV news, and I really wanted to be a news reporter. And candidly, my father was a Wall Street guy, and he thought that might be a better path. And so what happened was my junior year at college, we made a compromise. He agreed to help me financially do an internship in TV news. But the compromise was that it had to be in business news. So off I went and I did get an internship at CNN in business news. And I loved it. I loved the intellectual challenge. I love the fact that I didn't really understand a lot of it. And I actually went back and took courses, for example, an entire course, just understanding how the Fed works, which is fascinating if you're a super nerd. And so I started to really enjoy the intellectual challenge of it. And then also, frankly, as I got older and got towards graduation from school, I became more practical. And I thought, well, I want to have a family and get married, not necessarily immediately, but in the next, let's say, decade or so. And I didn't know that I wanted to spend that next 10 years traveling around to small markets, working my way up, if things went well, in the local news markets. And I also was a little less comfortable than I thought I would be asking people 
to do interviews with me sometimes when they would have a bad situation, which is what happens in local news. Something bad happens and you have to go do the story and you have to go to people when they're vulnerable. And I thought that was really going to be hard for me. So I thought about the fact that I really enjoy the business news and I decided to go that way. And then I got my first job at CNBC, which allowed me to live first at home while I saved to buy an apartment and then in New York City in my first apartment and on from there. Fascinating. I'm curious, what is it like to, I don't even know what it's like to put together a story about business news. Like, where do you start? Do you get assigned something? Do you pitch stories? And then tell us a little bit about that process. I'm just curious. Oh, I love that question. Nobody ever really asks for how things get decided. (laughs) There's a lot of public relations people that can use your help. It's a mix. The truth is it's a mix. If something is happening in the news that is dominating the news that people want to see, and especially in this age where people can really vote with their clicks, you can see very directly what story is resonating and what is not. I have a friend even at a newspaper where she can see online if her story resulted in an increase in subscriptions. So it's very specific how well your story is doing. So you definitely are paying attention to what people want to see. And then there's also the flip side where you can pick, you can pitch occasional feature stories. And those are a little bit tougher to get done. But I think it's generally a mix. What's interesting though, is people think that the biggest interviews are always with, for example, the CEO of a company. But what I found is that my bosses would be skeptical because let's say at a business news job, you'd have an earnings report out and the company would offer up their CEO to comment on it. But you only had time for one interview. Very often, shockingly, my bosses would say, no, first of all, if they're offering up the CEO, it's probably very good news. So they're just going to yak and yak about how great their company is. And then the flip side is we really need analytical information. We really need to know how to put those earnings in context. And so they would often say, no, book the analyst who's going to be an expert on that company and can give investors really useful, actionable information rather than the CEO who's going to be trained by their PR people. And by the way, nothing wrong with that, but he's going to be trained to just be an advocate for his company and for the stock and try to make investors feel good about whatever the news is. So people don't always understand the logic between turning down a CEO interview, but we did turn down quite a few interviews, which was always fascinating to me. That is fascinating. I've never really thought about that, the difference between the types of interviews that would be given by different roles in a company. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's not to say you wouldn't do the interview later. I'm saying the right. immediate response. Right. right. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. What's of value so, to the reader, to the listener, to the viewer? Yes. So you decide you want to focus on business news. And I think you mentioned you were working at CNBC. So tell us a little bit about what happened next. How did that play out for you? Well, I worked my way up through the different stations. I started at the lowest possible level. Well, first of all, I was an intern unpaid at CNN and I worked overnights there and that gave me really great experience. And I encourage everyone to figure out if you're doing an internship, figure out where you can stand out because especially if you're not being paid or you're being paid very little, you do need to focus on what you are getting out of the situation and how that will position you for the next job. And by working overnights, I was able to get clips on the air. I was able to really actually write for shows rather than just get everybody lunch. Even though it wasn't so fun, it was worth it. And it positioned me well for when I graduated. And then, so I worked at CNBC in the lower level positions, moved up a bit from there. CNN recruited me back when they started a business news channel, which is now folded. But after that, I wanted to get on air because I saw that's where the real upside was, frankly. And so I went to Nightly Business Report where they had promised that I could train and get on air, which I did. And then I got a job 
as an anchor at Reuters, which is a globally syndicated product. So it's white labeled, which means I would do news reports and we would send it out to hundreds of clients around the world and they would kind of put their own branding on it. So you might see me in a different country, but it was still the same report that other stations in different countries had purchased as well. So that was pretty cool. Wow. So you were literally living your childhood dream. It happened. (laughs) It did happen. And I will tell you, that's been one of the things that I've always taken to heart with my own children is even though it may seem far-fetched, whatever they want to do, it's important to give them the space to figure that out. I know in retrospect, my father was not that optimistic that I would actually become a TV news anchor. And he was prepared to help me transition to a different kind of career that might be more accessible. But even with my middle kid just graduated from film school and you know what? He's got lots of NDAs, so we can't say anything here about what he's working on, but he works for a major motion picture company on a major superhero movie that will be coming out. Well, it finishes editing in the spring. So I don't know, maybe sometime in 2023 or 2024, but he is working in the industry that he trained to do, even though we weren't thrilled when he changed his major um, at school. It's important to just let it play out because it is their life. Even though you're worried about them, let them do it. And if they go a few years and it's not working out, let them decide whether to make a transition. My father gave me the space to do that. And I'm trying to do that for my kids as well. And so you were living the dream, but then at some point, how did you then become interested in personal finance and how did financial grownups come to be? Okay. Gold star for that question. This is my favorite (laughs) thing to talk about. So, and I'm going to sound a little bit harsh, but I think there's absolutely a role for stations like CNBC. I had a great experience there and I think they do a wonderful product. That said, for the average person, I don't know that it's the best use of your time to spend your day watching the minute by minute moves of stocks. First of all, it's just not healthy. It's like spending your day on TikTok. It's almost the same kind of thing where it just sucks you in. It's just not healthy. And also it's not good for your investing. It's much better to take a broader focus, have a diversified portfolio and be thoughtful about what you're doing and not be influenced by day different announcements. You should be aware of them, but I don't think we need to spend that time doing that. And so after years of doing this kind of news where I joke that when I left Reuters, I tried to make, we do these sort of composite reels in broadcasting where it's sort of a highlight. And it seems like every single day, I gave an update on what the Fed was going to do, was doing or did do. And they were all at that time period. Now it's actually very interesting. At the time, though, it was no action. I was constantly reporting on the fact that the Fed did nothing. And I was also reporting a lot on this endless stream of earnings reports and economic data. And for most of us, for example, inflation, very interesting right now. You should definitely be aware. Maybe you check in monthly. You know that inflation went up because maybe you're interested in I-bonds or you see the prices going up at the grocery store. You want to have some idea what's going on. So it makes sense high level to be aware of this. I'm not saying to bury your head in the sand, but we don't need that. It's just exhausting. And it became exhausting after I did it for 15 years. And so I wanted to find a way to make a more specific impact on people's lives. And I thought, well, what can I do? And my first book, How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, is really, it's impactful money stories from high-achieving business 
headliners, famous people in the business world, where they share their sort of aha moments about money. And so that was really a very special book to me. I think that it accomplished a lot and it really set me on a path where I could do more good work in the personal finance space. I then created the Financial Grown-Up Podcast, which I've now rebranded a little bit to Money Tips for Financial Grown-Ups, just to be a little more, more clear about it. And also now I have my new book, Launching Financial Grown-Ups, which is for parents to help their young adults become more everyday money smart. So tell us a little bit about the new book. And I'm assuming maybe something happened in your life or you were watching kids slide into a certain place and you're like, oh my God, don't do this. And then which led you to write the book. So what were some of those signs or some of those things that you saw in case anybody out there might be listening and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm going through this exact same thing right now that maybe you experienced that led you to write the book. So tell us about that. Yeah, it was some very embarrassing moments that I was ashamed of. And I didn't want to really tell my friends about but because I should know more and I should be a better parent. I thought I knew all the information about what people should do when they get their first jobs, when they start earning money, when they start living as adults in their early adult years, even let's say their later teenage years, I knew all this, but somehow I was failing fantastically with my own children who are now 23 and 26. And they were, let's say, in college at the time, I think. And so it was embarrassing. Like, how could I be so bad at this? And I started confiding in some of my friends and they said the same thing. And then other things started coming out. Like one friend of mine who is just so well-respected in her career and such an amazing person confided that her son was almost 30 and she was still subsidizing him. And she had taken money out of her retirement funds to help him. And she was just at a loss for how to get out of this terrible situation. And then more stories started coming out. And I realized there was nothing for parents of these sort of, I call them almost adults, they can also be called emerging adults, to help them get their kids on the path to being financial grownups. There's so many amazing books out there for kids, your kids' ages, and for parents of little kids. And then the book starts speaking to, as my first book did, to the young adults directly. But there was nothing out there for me as a parent of a young adult. So I saw the gap and I decided to try to fill it. And so far, the response has been amazing. Everyone that sees the book says, I need this book because we're all trying to figure it out. And we all know that, I don't want to say there's no parenting manual because there's plenty of books out there, but there's really not a lot out there when your children are adults and yet they're still your kids. You still want to be there for them. And they're not really fully functioning in the adult life as maybe we would like them to be, or, and also as they would like to be. They're frustrated themselves. Yeah, I feel it's interesting because I feel like the conversation around finances and just are where are we teaching our children financial literacy, even starting at a very young age? And what happens is they get older to this point where they're about to become an adult and you're left with this situation and you're not really thinking about what are we doing now because the conversation didn't really start at like a very early age. So what are some of the tips in the book? If somebody's listening and they're like, wow, this sounds like me, something I'm experiencing right yeah. now. I, my kid still lives in my basement and he's 35. <laughs> 
maybe hopefully not. What are some takeaways or some advice that you might be able to give to to the mom or the dad that might be listening to this podcast right now? Well, if the kid is 35, it's tough love all the way. <laughs> My book is really 16 to 26. Yeah. At 35, yeah, get them out. Yeah. It's on them. I mean, yeah. that's sort of no more coddling. But I think that it's okay. I don't like the word coddling so much, but it's okay to be supportive and and really loving in how you help your children become adults. I do not, anyone that's read the book knows, I don't believe in just arbitrarily cutting your child off at a random age. But I do think it's important for us as parents to reframe our mindset. Very often we think they should be learning this in school. So we're all busy fighting for personal finance education in schools. But there's a couple of problems with this. Number one, when it does happen, it doesn't mean it's always well done. Very often the teachers don't have the right background and skill set to be teaching it. Very often the schools are mandated to offer it, but that doesn't mean the children actually sign up. And this has been seen in colleges. I know there was a professor I heard speaking the other day from University of Pittsburgh who said the school has about 20,000 children, young adults, whatever, enrolled, students enrolled, and 32 signed up for his class right? So that's a statement right there is the kids don't have an interest at that age when they're in school, whether it's high school or college. Some do, of course, but a lot of them just simply are busy with other things or there's courses that are just more interesting to them when they're in college or or they're just trying to get through and get their major fulfilled, the requirements for their major fulfilled, then it's usually an elective. But the bigger thing I want parents to realize is that ultimately they are the stakeholders in their child's financial future not the schools. The schools are part of a transition. They are temporary. Your child is going to graduate and the school has no stake in it other than if they want alumni donations, of course. But for the most part, the schools are not going to be there sitting next to them with a laptop open, making sure that if they have a rental apartment, they're getting renter's insurance. And by the way, if you have something separately that's expensive, you need a rider. I have someone close to me that should know better that recently had the diamond in her ring fall out. And she realized that when they switched homes a decade ago and they got new home insurance, there was no rider on that home insurance for that stone. Okay. This is what I'm talking about. It's really expensive when you don't have your personal finance issues together and it can happen at any age. So it's best to set them up for success when they're younger. And of course, you don't always know what's going to happen, what life will unfold. There's all kinds of variables in our health, in how our careers go, and so on. So you want your children to be in a good place. And there's never a better time than now or yesterday. Wow. Jewelry insurance can help. Yes. <laughs> yeah. On Rider on your home insurance will usually do it. But yeah, she just like didn't realize. Well, her husband set it up and he didn't realize and she didn't know. And it wasn't like it happened last week. That's what upset me. And she did give me permission to share the story, by the way, but it is, I'm not going to share her name, but it's very upsetting to me because she should know better. And it was on the first round of home insurance, but when they moved, they didn't put it on the new home insurance. So this is stuff that can happen to anyone. So easy to miss these things. So easy to miss a payment on life insurance or whatever it may be. So it's really important. These are not electives, as you might say, this is mandatory for adult life because you want to take care of your family and the stakes do get higher. 
Do you ever offer any kind of like coaching or like if somebody's like, oh my gosh, I need to go to Bobby and have her like an audit for me of like all my things. Like I can see that being like a business. I'm always thinking about business. Oh, I love that business idea. I do get asked that all the time. I just don't think as a business, I can't be doing one-to-one. I am considering because people keep asking doing some kind of a group situation. So if somebody wants to get a group together, I might do some sort of masterminds or coaching group of young adults. But right now I'm not set up for that just because the economics don't really make sense for me the way, yeah, on a one-on-one basis, I would just have to charge too much and I don't want to do that to anyone. But I definitely have a work with me tab on my website, which is just my name. So you can always hit me up and propose something. I just want to help people. I certainly do drop-ins. If people buy books from their book club, I'll do a web drop-in and answer some questions. That's easy to do. And I love doing that. Everyone that buys my book gets a virtual hug. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I think it'd be so cool though, for anyone who's like listening, because if your friend had come to you and was like, let's do this financial audit or like, let's look at situation, you would have caught that and potentially not anyway. No, it's a great idea. It's just the economics to do one-on-one just don't make sense right now, but I want to help people. So throw something out at me and I'll try to help. We'll get back to our conversation with Bobby in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid like we were that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now back to our chat with Bobby Rebel. There you go. There you go. I love that attitude. Love it. All right. Before we started the show, we were talking a little bit about this story. And I think it's such a great story that I want you to share with the listeners because it's a story about your daughter 
buying real estate at a very young age. And I think for a lot of people, young adults and even fully grown adults think that getting into real estate is so hard that there's too much risk that there's, I remember a long time ago, year, years ago, decades ago, a friend of mine, when I had expressed interest getting into real estate had said, oh, I know a friend who bought a house. And like the day after she bought the house, she didn't realize she didn't have insurance and then had to pay like $20,000 for a roof replacement or some scary story like that. Right. I think that there's always going to be risks in everything that we do. And I think it's how we sort of shape, especially young minds around the opportunities that are available to them through real estate. So tell us a little bit about that story, how she did it, what age was she and where is she now? I assume it's been a couple yeah, of years. She's in the apartment. <laughs> okay. Tell us the story. And by the way, she's in the apartment and she has more spending money than ever because her housing cost is really very well under control because it's capped. She has control versus in New York City where we are real estate rents have really skyrocketed post pandemic. So that is one thing to think about is control. When you own, you have a lot more control than when you rent. So I had bought an apartment when I was 23 years old. So that was something that gave her the idea. And she'd been thinking about it really through her teenage years, back of mind, but always saving money, even through her years when she worked as a lifeguard, she worked as a tutor, she worked at camp. So she was always working, but always putting that money away. And same thing, even in college with jobs, she chose her career. I do want to be very clear. She went into school thinking she was going to be a teacher. Teaching is amazing. It is not well-paid. She said, she decided she switched her major to something. um, And this gets a little bit over my head, but basically she's a consultant and she helps companies not get hacked. She's in like risk cybersecurity type stuff, way over my head. She's very smart. But anyway, she loved teaching, but she also loved computers and coding and all the things that go with that. So she looked at different skill sets she had and decided she wanted to prioritize the one that would give her the most financial freedom. And so she did change her major knowing she would get a higher paying job coming out of school. And that is something I think we should be more candid about with our young people that you could absolutely do anything you want, follow your passion, but your passion might also be not having the stress of not being able to pay your bills. So she really didn't want the stress of trying to live in New York City where she wanted to live, where she grew up. And so she did choose a higher paying job. Once she got out of school, she asked, can I live at home? I'm going to bank my money. She did so. We did a whole podcast episode about that time. If someone wants to see it, I think it's episode 400 on my podcast. But anyway, in short- Remind us real quick of the name of your podcast. So if anyone's- Oh, Money Tips for Financial Grownups. The key thing there is that the pandemic also helped. So she didn't have as much pressure to spend. So that probably accelerated the timeline, but she banked everything. Granted, not everyone- graduate school debt-free. Not everyone can live rent-free with their parents where their job is. And not everyone, we paid her other random expenses like food. We didn't charge her for dinner. So she did have that. And she does talk about that privilege that she did have. Nevertheless, during that time, she also learned a lot about her credit score, which I think is very important. She worked very hard specifically on getting that credit score up, choosing a credit card, making sure to charge things, making sure to pay things off, making sure to never be late with a bill. She also heavily researched. In New York City, we have what's called co-ops. So she researched. It's, it's not that easy. It is a complicated system. Trust me, if you're in the suburbs, it's easier. She researched what are the costs associated with owning a co-op? What are the costs associated with closing the deal on the co-op? What are my options if I want to go to graduate school and can and I want to rent it out? And the numbers worked, but they didn't work. I will tell you, at the time that she bought it, the way she worked out the numbers, she would barely break even renting it out. 
So it wasn't like a slam dunk, but she knew that if she wanted to go to graduate school and rent it out or leave for some reason, she could at least basically break even. That's also really important when you talk about the risks. What is the risk if you don't want to live there and you can't sell it or you don't want to sell it? So she figured all that out. And after two years, she had the down payment she knew she needed, which is 20% in New York City. So no joke. And we started looking and we did eventually find a place that fit her criteria. And she's living there today. She had to figure out all the closing costs are no joke. It's very complicated. And getting approved for a mortgage, she researched all of that ahead of time so that she was ready. I love it. What diff- Tell everyone if they're listening, what is a co-op? What does that mean? What does that look like? Is it like a shared like yes. eight bedroom house or whatever, and then you rent out the rooms or? No, it means that the building is owned by an entity that is, and I'm not going to say this perfectly, so you guys should also Google it, but effectively you own shares in a building that allow you to occupy a specific unit. And so you will pay every month maintenance that will pay for your share of the taxes and your share of the staffing and upkeep of the building. And what's nice about that is that you do not have to then specifically, let's say something happens in your apartment and you need repairs. In many cases, they will come and repair. You're not on your own. You're part of this co-op. So there's a lot of shared expenses, which is kind of nice. The downside, of course, is if something happens with the building, you also share in covering that. So let's say the roof needs repairs. Based on the number of shares that you own, you will have to contribute to that. That might be paid out of a reserve fund, which a well-run co-op will have a reserve fund. So you're not going to get a surprise bill. That's another thing that you should research. If you're in any kind of multifamily housing, which you guys know a lot about, it's important to know if you're the owner, what is going to be my share of the cost? Is there a reserve fund? Is the board responsible? Do they do a good job of knowing ahead of time how to make sure to maintain shared resources, like shared heater maybe, or shared water to make sure you don't have an emergency, which causes a higher repair bill. So it's really important to research the financials of the co-op. And she did learn how to read the financials. So a lot of people bid on multifamily housing units, but they haven't read the financials. And there could be some major surprises in for you. doesn't mean you don't buy into something that's not perfect. It just means you budget for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's almost kind of like a TIC, right? Isn't that how like tick structures work on properties where you I don't know much about that. I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. I think that's the way it works. Annie, do you know? It's a little bit different. The first house, uh, well, actually the first apartment that I bought was actually a co-op and it's exactly as Bobby describes. And with a tick, you actually own a piece of, it's just a little bit of a different entity structure, but it's kind of the same concept. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just surprised though, because it sounds like there are so many benefits, Bobby, to like this co-op structure, especially for uh, someone who's in her age range and the risk Mm -hmm. and sort of this shared, this idea of like shared risk, you know, a better idea or a safer, less risky idea. But what I love is that she did all this research and like, didn't just say like, oh, this sounds like a great idea. Like, I'm just going to go do this. But that she really like weighed the options between like full ownership on her own and the co-op structure and really asked herself, where do I feel comfortable? What feels like safe to me and what makes sense for me? Because I think what makes sense for one person might not make sense for another person. There's so much of who you are that resonates that makes the decision like one way or the other. So I love that she went into that process. Yeah, I do want to mention something though. It's important to know what your rights are to rent it out because certainly in New York City, many co-ops have very restrictive 
rules about when you can rent out that apartment. So hers has what's called condo rules. So she has a lot of freedom to rent it out. That was something she was willing to pay more for because it's a priority for her being young. A lot of young people don't want to be sort of, they might perceive it as being trapped into a home because she could rent it out. That gave her a lot more comfort. And the other thing I want to say is that many co-ops in New York City require at least 20% down, many of them even more while that may sound intimidating and frustrating on your way in, one of the things that keeps New York City real estate from having defaults and bankruptcies the way that suburban single family homes sometimes do is that people have to have a certain amount of equity. And when you have more equity, you tend to have fewer defaults and therefore it helps protect the value of everyone's property. Because if everyone has to have higher stakes, you can't put down to 3%. I've never heard of a co-op that you can get into for 3%. I think the lowest I've ever heard is 20% for a co-op, maybe 10% for a condo. So that equity stake makes a huge difference when the markets become more volatile and real estate becomes vulnerable. You have that protection that people are rarely going to be underwater in terms of their real estate ownership. And that protects everyone. Wow. That is such a good tip. If you are listening to this podcast, I feel like that might even be like the tip of the whole show, like, because it's these little things that if you're not looking for and you don't think about that could mean the difference between foreclosure or bankruptcy or being in really bad situation or being on the good end of everything. So I love that. That's such a good tip. I know we're getting to the end of the show, but I did want to ask, I know that you have younger teenage kids. (laughs) Give me the quick, like two, three tips that you're some things that you might be implementing now with the kids at that age range to help them have success as they reach college age and beyond. One of the challenges is if you're in a fortunate situation and your kids kind of know that you can afford something, you can't always say, I'm not getting you that because it's not in the budget or we can't afford it because they're on to you. And so one thing I talk about a lot is just the fact that this is what we're choosing to do, not what we have to do. So it's important to change the language and not necessarily make it about a scarcity mindset, make it about a deliberate and intentional mindset where this is how we choose to live our life, especially when they're at a fragile age in their teenage years where there's so much peer influence and peer pressure and they're starting to see things on social media and they're curious, why don't I have that? And you have to explain to them, you don't have that, not because we can't afford it, because that's just not what we value the most with our money. And there's other things that we're doing. And depending on the child's maturity and interest, start showing them things about investing, start showing them Well, we have this property because by the way, they can look up a lot of information. So you're not really revealing a whole lot when they can very quickly figure out what your home is worth, what their school costs. If they attend private school, they can look those prices up. So they know if you're sending them to a fancy summer program, they're onto you. So rather than keeping a secret, that's not a secret, be a little bit more open to them again, to your comfort level and let them know sort of what life costs. And maybe it will motivate them to pay attention in school as it did. I talked about our oldest that she really decided she wanted to live in New York City where she'd grown up and she became aware of the cost and that did change her choices. And she's really happy with the choices that she made. The other thing I would really stress is communication that make sure that you're not judgmental when they make a spending mistake so that they don't not tell you. 
And this goes back to, I use an app where I could see, for example, last year, my son would go, I would give him his allowance and I could see he went to Krispy Kreme donuts and he thought he could hide it from me. And obviously I could see exactly what he bought, but it's important to just say, I'm not mad at you, but let's talk about this. Maybe you could get a salad next time. And if they say the salad is more expensive, you can say, it's not about the money. It's about the health. And let's plan what you're going to be buying with your friends. Let's plan where you're going to go. Let's plan. You want to buy a a present for your friend's birthday, let's plan a budget so that there's constant communication and really watch the judgment, not just with your words, but with your tone. And I say that based on so many mistakes that I've made, because they will try to hide things from you if they feel they're going to be judged, especially as teenagers. And you want them to know you might push them to do something different, but that you're not going to judge them, yell at them, punish them, and so on. You're going to work with them to get them on a better path. I love that because the communication that you're having and that you're encouraging is going to make them feel supported and ultimately loved. And I feel like when kids feel like they're supported and loved, it just helps them so much in their life, not just in their finances, but in their life as well. So love that so much. What was that app that you were using? I use Greenlight. Greenlight. Okay, perfect. We are huge advocates of Greenlight. (laughs) Interesting to hear that you're using that at the teen years. Use it now with my kids. They're under 10, but and Annie uses it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great. Yeah. I know. We love it so much. All right. We're going to move into the last part of our show, the Life and Money Show Spotlight Round, where we're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is around your life and money. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? I am really focusing on listening skills these days. I think we spend a lot of time as I have in this podcast talking a lot, but it's important to listen to your family, especially. And that goes for your kids as they grow up. Very often what they want is to be heard rather than always have you solving their problems. A lot of us parents, we go from being helicopter parents to what I call concierge parents, where we're there for them, often through technology, available at all hours to solve their problems, often using money But sometimes they don't need their problems to be solved as much as they need to simply be heard. And I'm trying to get better at not pushing them towards a resolution, but just having empathy, listening, and helping them come to their own solutions. Oh, gosh, that's so good. It's something that I'm working on, too. And it is hard. (laughs) It is hard. I am struggling with it. I'm putting it out there. I mess it up frequently because it's our human nature to want to just figure out a solution and brainstorm a a simple solution. Let's fix the situation rather than just listening and letting them share with you. Yeah. And I feel like all people want to just be understood and it's hard Mm -hmm. to be, get them to feel like they feel like they're understood when you're not listening. Right. So Mm -hmm. such a great thing to be working on. All right. Second question is around others, life and money. So what is one life or money hack that you can share that will make an impact in others' lives right now? I think the most important thing is to open your bills, metaphorically in many cases. We often automate so much of our lives, and I advocate that 100%. The danger in automating everything is that we often don't know what's going on at the granular level. So even if you don't do it every single month, make sure you check in on your bills. Well, you should do it every single month with things like credit card bills, go through them. But there are certain things that we subscribe to, for example, that you may not be using, or you may not be using at the level you're paying for. Maybe you can drop down to the free level or a lower level. So make sure you evaluate them. This is especially important for parents because our children tend to outgrow certain apps. I know I had certain math apps or vocabulary, brain teasers, this and that, puzzles that a teacher would advocate 
and you're paying $2.99 a month for and three years later, you realize you're still paying for it, even though your kid is no longer using it. And if you say, will you use it? They'll say, sure, but they're really not. And you can use those settings on your phone to see their usage. That's something, by the way, I still do. Parental controls forever. <laughs> even if you don't actually restrict it, you can see what they're doing. And at least then you can have a conversation. Even if it's as simple as, I realize you're not using this app, I'm not going to pay for it anymore. And they'll go, okay, right? But at least be aware of what they're using. Be aware of what you're using and make sure you're not wastefully just sending money off because you subscribed years ago. And yeah, I've caught many myself. Yeah. It's almost like you need, like we were talking about earlier, like doing some kind of an audit, right? Maybe do like a yeah. Order like audit, look at your credit card bills, see where the spending goes, check your subscriptions, like just yep. make sure everything is still as you intended it to be mm-hmm. at your current state and wherever you are, something like that. But that's such great advice. I actually just did this yesterday where I went through all my subscriptions because I'm like, okay, so this one's renewing. Oh, we don't use that one anymore. Let's, and then you still have access to the app. So I don't know if anyone. Oh, they'll take you back, by the way, if you change yeah. your mind. That's the other thing. Like, don't worry about that. Not yeah. only that, by the way, recently, I actually made a TikTok about this. I didn't say on TikTok, but it was the New York Times. So you have exclusive information. New York Times, I subscribed like over a year ago. It was a dollar a week. And yeah. I do need to, it's really good for me to have access to the New York Times, not only for my own personal interest, but for my business. So I'm subscribing at $1 a week, $4 a month. And then they jacked it up to $17 a month. And I was like, that's a lot. That kind of really starts to add up, right? And I said, I'm canceling it just to see what would happen. Because again, they'll always take you back. (laughs) And literally within minutes, I got a little AI bot that said, why are you canceling? And I said, I'm canceling because it's too expensive. And they said, well, and I figured they'd offer me like 15 a month. No, they went back to a dollar a week, $4 a month. If I would resubscribe for a year, (laughs) I was like, this is too easy. Like I would have taken something in the middle, but immediately just for saying the reason I canceled was money. I said, it was just too expensive. They immediately dropped down because I guess they don't want to lose a subscriber. So it was such an easy negotiation. I don't think I ever talked to a human. I think it was a bot, but yeah. yeah. So definitely don't be afraid to renegotiate, especially if you sign up for something at an introductory rate, keep asking for that introductory rate and don't be afraid to cancel it. You could always take you back. Yeah. Don't be afraid to ask is the thing that my mom always talks about. She's like, what's the harm? The worst they can say is no. Right. And right best scenario is that they give you what you wanted, which is right for you. I couldn't believe it. All right. We'll see see if they do it again in a year. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If they raise the price again in a year. Yeah. Then you have to, they'll they'll raise it again in a year, but will they give me the discount so easily again? I don't know. It'll be your annual call to the New York Times. Yeah. Like a calendar item. Yeah. Like got a call. Oh yeah. I didn't even have to call. Literally. It was like the little chat bot. Yeah. So easy. All right. Well, last question is around life and money in the world. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? So I'm actually a board member of an organization called JWI. So JWI.org. And they provide resources for survivors of domestic abuse. And almost everyone, something like 99% of survivors of domestic abuse were also survivors of financial abuse. And so that is something that I think we should be talking more about that very often. And in almost every case, it's, it's women that are the victims of financial abuse. So I really urge women, if they are victims of financial abuse, to either go to a different resource, but certainly JWI.org um, can provide support 
and get the help that you need. And even if you're not in a financially abusive situation, this points out that we all need to be advocates for ourselves. And even if you're not the one managing money in your family, make sure you're aware of what's going on, that you know what your resources are, that you know what your income is, what your financial obligations are, and so on. Just be in the know, even if you're not the one doing all of the heavy lifting. Thank you so much for shedding light on that worthy yeah. cause. I don't think we even knew about that. We're definitely going yeah. to be looking into that as well and, yeah. and spreading the word about that. JWI.org yeah. will have that for yeah. all of our listeners in the show yeah. notes. Well, Bobby, we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation. Yeah. I know our listeners are going to want to follow up with you and learn more, perhaps get a copy of your books, listen to your podcast, tell them what's the best place that they can go. Thank you so much. So everything is centered on my website, which is just my name, bobbyrebell.com, B-O-B-B-I-R-E-B-E-L-L.com. You can find out how to work with me there. There's a tab on the right. You can get more information about my podcast, about my book. There's also bulk discounts. If you do want to order books, maybe as gifts or as a corporate gift to your clients and so on. And definitely be in touch on all the socials. Most of them are just Bobby Rebel, but on Instagram, there's the number one. So it's Bobby Rebel one on Instagram. And I would love to hear from people. Fantastic. Bobby Rebel, author of the books, Launching Financial Grownups and How to Be a Financial Grownup and host of the critically acclaimed Money Tips for Financial Grownups podcast. Bobby, thank you so, so much for being here and sharing your wisdom and your insights with us and our listeners today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of the show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations. 